namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami I'm uh, very glad to have this um, opportunity to say a few words uh, during this retreat. These uh, retreats, times such as this, are very lovely occasions, uh, a blessed time for everyone that we can take uh, time out. And as we were, people were saying yesterday, to be able to spend uh, a few days in each other's company with uh, such harmony and and uh, calm and uh, beauty in the atmosphere and the way that we move around, relate with each other and um, the way we spend our time, the way we're spending our days. This is something, a very lovely opportunity, something that uh, is rare in the world to have these kind of supportive conditions to be a- to enable us to say, awaken to the true nature of things. It takes an awful lot of, of uh, different things to harmonize in order to enable uh, living beings to gather together and to have enough safety, enough time, enough inclination and guidance in order to be able to recognize the truth. So, uh, personally, I feel very glad, and I'm sure many of you do, that... Uh, we have such an opportunity as this. As um, Ajahn Sumato was pointing out, this little verse that uh, we recite uh, on the occasion of someone's death, uh, pointing out that that uh, when, when conditions, when all things have arisen and then passed away, in their passing, there is peace. This is a. This is a, one of the most important aspects of the teaching that uh, that exists. Um, because what it's pointing to is the fact that the the fundamental reality of life is peacefulness. It's uh, the basis is peace, and that uh, when things. Uh, when things arise, when things are born, then we witness the unpeaceful, the agitation, the um, the happenings of the world of existence. But uh, if the mind is awake, when things pass away, we notice that uh, when things have gone, there is peacefulness. Just as you can in the meditation, as the mind begins to calm down, you notice that that it's out of peacefulness that things arise, thoughts or feelings, emotions arise out of peacefulness 
and they exist for a while and can run around and do their do their thing and then when they dissolve then there's peacefulness again uh, in the beginning uh, uh, when we first start to say look into our minds and or aim to develop the spiritual path in any way and then we st- we can turn our attention inwards then we don't notice a lot of peacefulness or space in there certainly from my experience there was uh, just this uh, kind of amazing uh, turbulence kind of maelstrom of, of activity and confusion kind of 20 21 years of uh, too much thinking drinking talking <laughs> Too much of everything, uh, packed into a you know, 20th century European um, youth, and the result was uh, just uh, a tremendous amount of turbulence and, and activity. Now our heart knows that, in, our intuition knows that somewhere, somewhere in there, buried underneath, kind of behind all of the activity, there is there is something that's not moving <laughs> somewhere. Somewhere in there, there is some space, some some light, some peace, but it can seem pretty uh, dark or turbulent or or uh, impenetrable, busy. What's going on in our minds? But in a in a sense, that's what one has to expect. Certainly, uh, this was when I I first started to meditate. I I'd, I'd never uh, studied. Uh, anything to do with Buddhism before um, I was traveling in Asia I found myself in this monastery with a um, where a lot of uh, Western monks live this was the monastery that was established by Ajahn Sumedho in the early 70s and I was just a tourist in Thailand and found myself showing up at, at this place and uh, everyone was very into meditation and, and that was the uh, main order of the day so I thought well I should get to know about this. So I started to, I obviously joined in with the, all the sittings and uh, walking meditation. After a couple of days, I remember going to see one of the, the senior monks and saying, look, there's something that's not working here. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I've, I mean, I've been meditating for two or three days now and <laughs> still my mind is really, uh, is, is very, very busy. And <laughs> Yeah, am I doing something wrong? And they <laughs> this kind of wry smile arose on the face of this monk, and um, he said, "Well, I think you should expect that for a while yet. <laughs> Usually, uh, just uh, kind of right off the first couple of years, as <laughs> as being uh, just witnessing uh, activity, confusion, busyness, the mind. Because if you think about it, when all you've done is is to cram your mind full of." of uh, information and stimulation um, for 20 odd years then uh, what do you expect you never tried to train the mind in this particular way to actually uh, focus upon the present moment to focus upon the ordinary the normal the unexciting to actually hold the mind on a single object for more than a few seconds you know because you never tried to do that before it's like uh, trying to, l- to learn a foreign language. You can't just pick it up in a couple of days. It's uh, a lengthy, lengthy process. 
So to uh, when we begin to look into our minds and uh, we notice that a lot of this sort of darkness or confusion or activity, this is not anything to be surprised at or even depressed about. I mean, it's not what we'd like. So, you know, when we decide to become a spiritual person, we can give up, give up the, uh, the ways of the flesh and, uh, <laughs> and uh, intellectual pursuits and uh, you know, worldly activity, and we decide, okay, now I'm going to be a spiritual person. I've had it with all the other stuff. I'm going to get spiritual. And um, you decide to, to start um, being kind of awake and sensitive and loving and kind and so forth. Um, it can be really depressing and disappointing that the mind doesn't obey, that it just, uh, you kind of, endless streams of distracted thoughts and memories and fantasies and worries about the future and uh, re- uh, reliving the past and, and childish emotions and the whole phantasmagoria kind of keeps on going. But, um, as I was saying, this is what what we should expect. And to be content that uh, this is the material that we start with. This is our our raw matter, our raw clay that we have to work with. The the Buddha did point out, and it's something that um, one doesn't... uh, In the beginning, one has to, in, in a sense, take on faith or trust that you know, the the fundamental nature of the mind is bright, is pure, is peaceful. The way uh, one way that the that it's it's put in the scriptures that the the Buddha said is that the nature of the mind, the mind's own nature is radiant, and uh, defilements are only visitors. That the natural uh, natural state of the mind is is radiant, bright. And all of the dark, turbulence, confusion, this is only things, conditions, activities that just arise, visit for a while, and then are gone. On a meditation retreat, one uh, can hear, uh, get, um, spend a lot of time just listening to these uh, the chattering of the mind and the, the incessant sort of judgment and criticism of what's going on, of, of uh, feeling that we, we should be doing better, we shouldn't be thinking this, or we should be, be more of that, and uh, a lot of judgment, criticism that goes on. Um, these are called the, the inner whisperings of the mind that's constantly saying, oh no, you <laughs> how long have you been meditating? You know, you should be doing better than this. I mean, look at you. <laughs> what kind of a meditator are you? I mean, how many retreats have you done? You should have got over this by now. Here you are, you know, man of 55 and still you're thinking about ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> you know, come on. Where are you at? What are you? What are you playing? At? Who are you trying to fool? Kind of sitting there, looking like some kind of super yogi, but but inside, I know. <laughs> and this is what in uh, in Buddhist mythology is called the voice of Mara. And often in the in the scriptures, you get this character popping up 
most often trying to, to tempt or to trick the Buddha is always coming along, surfacing and trying to, to, uh, to uh, make the Buddha doubt. And he said the same kind of things to the Buddha, saying, like, you know, you're not, you know, you're not really enlightened. I mean, who do you think you are? You kind of great Wally. You know, sitting there, kind of getting blissed out on on uh, of your meditation. But uh, you know, you only think you're a Buddha. Actually, you know, you you're you're really uh, got a long way to go yet. You're really a lot. There's a lot of impurity and and foolishness, it, delusion in your mind. And the way that the Buddha would always counter would always. Um, deal with Mara, would just be with uh, the knowledge, the, the answer, I know you, Mara. And then it's like Mara comes across like a kind of uh, musical villain. Like he's sort of, as soon as he's been recognized and uh, the Buddha's seen him, then he, he curses and goes off and uh, disappears to come back and fight another day to see if he can trick the Buddha again. And even up until the end of the Buddha's life, shortly before he died, Mara was still coming along, trying to, to make the Buddha die uh, a little bit early, give up on his community and, and die a bit before his time. Now, the voice of Mara is something that we listen to a lot with, uh, with meditation. It's always... Um, in the beginning, it can be quite coarse things, but as time goes by, it gets more and more subtle. Just little criticisms and judgments, little things that um, we identify with. And the way to, to always counter this kind of negativity, judgmentalism that goes on within us, self-disparagement, is to recognize that this is the voice of Mara. This is not. This is not the voice of wisdom. This is not th the truth. This is just the, the habit of criticism, of discrimination, of judgment. That's just chattering on. There's no need to believe it. One can recognize that it's. It's just a. A habit of mind. As um, the uh, the path is developed, as time goes by, and we say develop meditation practice over the years, and and one's understanding or one's um, attitude towards life becomes uh, more and more uh, clearly balanced and harmonious, where one is more in in accord with truth, then. Obviously, the um, the bright patches of the mind start to to stand forth a bit more, and it, one begins to to see that the the dark was actually just the overlay. In the beginning, it's like uh, you think that it's just dark in there with occasional spots of light and sort of strange moments. <laughs> a little kind of twinkle manages to to break through when you're not no, when you're not looking. When you're looking in the opposite direction, suddenly you notice this little sparkle here and there. But as time goes by, then one begins to realize that the, the, the dark, the, the difficulties, 
the negative, we're just that which was um, the veneer. And that behind it all, all along, there was the, the bright, the light. But this is a, a process, it takes a lot of patience, a lot of, say, steadfastness, of being ready to, to live with those uh, unpleasant uh, qualities of mind, those unpleasant voices, just to be able to listen patiently to the, uh, the chattering of the mind, to the whisperings of Mara, to be able to just patiently bear it, to listen and to let go, to just respond in a, in a, a patient and, and uh, easy way, to just relax with that. And this enables the whole uh, clarification of the mind, the ending of karma that's already been created. One's allowing that which has already been conditioned, launched into being, the product of our human birth. One's allowing that to simply end. And when one has a, an easy, contented attitude towards it, the dark and the bright, then we don't create any karma, we don't create the conditions for those things to be recreated. And we allow the, the natural development, the natural enlightenment process to proceed at a, a, in the best possible way. Uh, with, um, with meditation, with the kind of practice that, uh, that uh, we've been doing, just this simple, say, uh, focusing of the mind and letting go of, of our objects, letting go of distractions and just bringing the mind into the present, we can see more and more clearly how the feeling of, say, oppression or, or separateness uh, arises within us. Now, the, uh, our experience, the patterns of our experience uh, are f arise because of our birth as a human being. Because we're born, we have senses, we have the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, the mind. And so that we pick up a whole host of, of impressions, sense impressions, and thoughts and feelings, emotions, moods, memories. There's this whole uh, great uh, array of different influences arising within our minds that um, we are sensitive to, that these are appearing. This is obviously is something that everyone is well aware of. Now, what, what one begins to notice is that the more, uh, say, adept one gets with, with a meditation, then the more quickly one is able to see the process of, of the mind getting caught and to, to let go, to respond by letting go more and more quickly. And when the mind is, is very awake and alert, then we still feel, we still see and hear and taste and touch. We're not uh, trying to annihilate our experience to, to uh, exclude all kinds of sensory activity from our minds. The, the Buddha, uh, as our example, the Buddha walked and talked, wandered around the Ganges Valley barefoot for 
45 years dealing with all kinds of people and incidents and hot and cold and uh, hunger and fullness and richness and poverty, a whole uh, vast array of different conditions. As the Buddha, he didn't sort of lock himself away in a samadhi tank (laughs) (laughs) and just uh, kind of bliss out for the duration of his life, which he he could have done, but uh, he he was fully uh, awake and uh, and open to the the very uh, the whole range of conditions that we experience as human beings: the coarse and the refined, the beautiful and the ugly, the painful and the pleasant. Now, when we are awake and alert, then this is uh, this is being like the Buddha, being Buddha means that we, we too just feel, we see, we hear, we smell, we taste, we touch, we remember. We know the painful, the pleasant, the, uh, the bright, the dark. These are things that we experience fully and consciously. And uh, we, can, we find that we're able to, to leave them alone if we are alert. Then we can live without adding anything to them. This is the, the conduct of the activity of the Buddha, is being that which knows. So whether it's coarse or refined, whether it's, it's delicious or, or revolting, whether it's beautiful or ugly, or what we like or what we dislike, if we know clearly, if we are awake to things, and add nothing to that experience, this is... Uh, being enlightened to conditions, being enlightened to our experience. And there is no suffering, there's no discontent or, or uh, imperfection associated with that. The pain, pain is still painful, but there's a recognition that there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with things going wrong. It's quite... <laughs> to fail, to see something that you've done fail completely, and to be compl- to be awake and and uh, attentive to that is to know perfection. So it's even though on one level there's failure or wrongness or badness, if we're awake, one recognizes that that's that's not fundamental. It's just a a changing aspect of nature. It's just an experience of the moment, a pattern of consciousness that appears and disappears and the idea of failure or success or good or bad or like or don't like, we see that these are, are also just ways of labeling, ways of categorizing experience that has no fundamental substance at all. Now it's when we're, we're not awake, when we're not alert and attentive to things that we get into trouble or, or trouble arises more accurately. <laughs> Because uh, what happens is that what starts out with a, a simple feeling, like something which contacts the senses, we, we feel. And, the, and things are quite all right at that level, but then what we, what we feel, or what we think, what we, uh, what we cognize, then that we, 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 we name, we give it a name, we, ca- we categorize it, we put it into some pigeonhole in our minds we allot it some value. 
and then whatever we name, then we start we, we think about associations with that come up in our mind. It's no longer just a a simple uh, kind of unified experience, but it starts to kind of generate kind of friends and companions and offspring, and uh, soon the uh, the generations start to proliferate. They uh, go forth and multiply all over the all over the place. <laughs> this is uh, what is called papancha, uh, conceptual proliferation. Well, what starts out as a simple uh, a simple sight or a sound in a in a finger snap brings up a whole host of associations and memories and feelings and moods and emotions that can carry us away and. Uh, make uh, turn life into a a string of of difficulties and struggles, one after another. Now, as the uh, as this kind of process proceeds, as it goes from uh, just a simple feeling or perception, there's no sense of self there. There's no sense of me or mine. There's just red or, or, or blue, just pressure or sunlight, just taste or, or memory. It's simple, it's clear, pure. There's no sense of subject or object, it's just a pattern of experience. But as it uh, crystallizes and, and solidifies and starts to, uh, to proliferate, then the whole sense of a, a sub subject and object gets produced. That uh, someone who is, there is uh, a person who is feeling, who is experiencing, a person who perceives or a person who thinks becomes more and more uh, definite until uh, we feel like there's definitely me who is being pressurized by the world. But in, in actuality, it's rather like just pushing your head against the wall. You feel this terrible pressure on your head, and you, you've, you can't, you can't um, figure out what's going wrong. But it's actually uh, yourself that's creating the pressure, like you're pushing. And it's because of your pushing that you feel pain in your head. And you don't realize that oh, if you stop pushing, then the pain stops. And you feel like the wall the w is pressing on you is pressurizing you, is besetting you with, with difficulties and hassles and troubles and this is wrong and that's wrong and he shouldn't be like this and she shouldn't be like that and oh no, and I've got to go to work on Monday and how am I going to pay this bill and that bill and it seems like the world is, is pressing upon us but it's actually because of the, uh, the creation of, of self and other that we, it is, it is uh, through ignorance that the pressure is being generated and that uh, when we stop pushing, when we stop uh, acting out of ignorance, following uh, ignorant ways of thinking, then the pressure stops. The sense of, of subject and object, of me and the hassles of the world breaks up and dissolves. The world is still there. The, uh, 
feelings, thoughts, ideas, everything, it's all still there. But there's no pressure because there's no, uh, no sense of self. The sense of, of self or identity has been, has been let go of. The ego has died. Or rather, it was, it's recognized that uh, there never really was one. Now, this is um, what we mean when we talk about liberation, is that uh, the absence of that uh, friction between subject and object, between self and the world. Liberation from the, uh, from the sense of, of identity is a true liberation. This is what uh, we are truly liberated from, is the, the prison of identity. Now, uh, liberation or freedom is, is uh, often something that's very much misunderstood because in, uh, it's seen in terms of a person being free as the, as the goal, as the ideal. In fact, in America, you, in your constitution, you have, you have liberty liberty of the individual, written into your constitution. You see, the Brits, we don't have a constitution. We just have a kind of jum- a jumble of archaic <laughs> laws. But in America, you have a, you've actually got freedom. Your rights to freedom are written into your, your, uh, your, uh, your nationality. Being Americans, you have the right to be free. But in fact, it is a bit of a, a rip-off because <laughs> you can't get a free person. You know, you can't, uh, you can't have a free person because the very, because personhood is in fact the prison. <laughs> they don't tell you that in the constitution. Are <laughs> 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 uh, the uh, a lot of um, our efforts to uh, be free are. Uh, get snarled up or, or are frustrated because of, of not recognizing this. Certainly, for myself, this is uh, uh, my goal in life. Like, um, I grew up in a, in a sort of what they call nominal Church of England <laughs> family background, which means that uh, you go to church for uh, christenings, marriages and funerals. And occasionally at midnight mass at Christmas, if you just uh, can make it from the pub to the <laughs> to the church, <laughs> and uh, but I uh, I never had a great deal of interest in Christianity, but I was always very interested in in religion. I was always uh, fascinated by God and fascinated by the idea of freedom something in me knew that freedom was possible. And I certainly knew I longed for it because I, I definitely felt hemmed in and restricted by all the things that I had to do and, and wasn't allowed to do that I felt like doing. And so that uh, my uh, approach uh, as I was going up through my teens was uh, uh, 
through spirituality was to to sort of take in whatever I could of different spiritual traditions and sort of make my own amalgam out of it and to to find my own way and to make my own best efforts to be free to um, to not be attached or, or inhibited by anything but just to be a free spirit um, and I tried this this was uh, this was my my real interest so I, I I inclined I, uh, very much away from orthodox religion. I, uh, I became more of a, on the sort of hippie anarchist end of the, the spectrum rather than the kind of good boy who goes to church on Sundays end of the spectrum. <laughs> but uh, all my efforts to be uh, un, uh, unfettered and, and free uh, always seemed to be a bit frustrating or to... To leave, to leave me unsatisfied or to still leave me with a lot of unresolved fears and desires and, and anxieties over nothing. I mean, I grew up in a very kind of comfortable middle class uh, family background, a very kind of pleasant, safe environment, no real uh, struggles or difficulties around me. There was nothing to worry about, but, you know, I could... I remember just like lying in my hammock under the apple tree with my glass of tangerine squash and <laughs> with a dash of jibone listening to the uh, some music on the radio and realizing this is this is as good as it gets <laughs> this it doesn't get any but here you are in a in a garden of a a 500 year old cottage in the english countryside Swinging in your hammock under the apple tree in a blossom and sipping your ice cool drink and the sun is shining and nice music on the radio and your mind is on fire. <laughs> <laughs> this is agony. <laughs> <laughs> so that uh, I felt very much at a loss of what to do. I couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong. Uh, you know, I, I kind of follow the the whole formula. You know, it was all there. And I'm, I mean, I'm talking to Californians, so I'm sure you're you're all well aware of the uh, situation. I mean, this uh, this is about as close to paradise as as you get on the planet. California is uh, the promised land, but uh, I'm sure I don't have to. Uh, uh, I don't have very much doubt that most of you have managed to suffer a little bit, even in paradise. But this is, I couldn't, I was completely unable to figure this out on my own. I just uh, assumed that there was, there was something wrong with me, or I just wasn't trying hard enough, or I was just too uptight and inhibited. But the, the more I tried to go against my inhibitions and just uh, act spontaneously and be free, then the the more kind of uh, remorseful and stupid I felt <laughs> at uh, a lot of the things that I was doing and uh, a sense of, of uh, pointlessness or anxiety and of uh, the meaninglessness kept uh, gnawing away at me. And... Uh, this stayed in the in the background, and uh, after I, I went, finished at university, I went travelling in Asia, and I found even more uh, places that were even more like paradise than the 
under the apple tree in uh, in Kent, like in uh, traveling in Thailand, just on living on tropical beaches, you know, palm trees and corals and beautiful rainbow-colored fishes, and just lying on the beach and just kind of letting a occasionally getting up to go and get a pineapple stick from a <laughs> something to chew on for a minute or two and then back into the sea to cool off. But still, I found this uh, feeling of incredible uh, anguish and anxiety. Fear and desire just going on and on in the mind and a very pronounced lack of freedom. Even though this was uh, everything was was uh, perfect on the external level, it was um, only when I uh, when I came in, uh, in contact with this monastery. Well, I mentioned before that uh, the uh, that uh, what I was first shown taught how to meditate and was. Um, given some kind of instruction. And what was pointed out to me um, was that uh, the wha- what meditation is about more than anything else is learning to understand desire and fear and how to respond to that, what is the, the, the right way to respond to that. Now until that, that moment, until that time, I'd always assumed that that being free meant doing whatever you wanted to do and not feeling bad about it. That was my just assumption. I mean, it was so assumed that I never even voiced it to myself. That uh, this is what being free means. It means you can just do what you like and have uh, no limitations, no inhibitions. But um, what I uh, when, medita- when the, the uh, meditation practice was described to me and as I started to, to follow the instructions, uh, I had this uh, very powerful insight into how incredibly stupid I'd been. Because uh, it had never occurred to me that uh, desire is something that um, begins and ends that I'd always thought you either had to suppress a desire or gratify it. And that what I, I noticed with, uh, with the meditation for the first time was that a desire can come into your mind or a, a, a feeling of fear can come into your mind and it lives there for a while and then it's gone. And while it's there, it can be screaming, I've got to, I've got to have I've got to have whatever, so a cigarette or some ice cream or I've got to get out of this place or got to get uh, away from this person or got to get some more of that or the other. Or fear in the same way that it was uh, really startling to, to see that when a desire fades out when you just watch a desire in your mind when it's gone there's no remainder there's just peacefulness another desire can kind of arise 
very quickly or something else to replace it. But in that moment when, when the mind lets go, when it relaxes and, and is awake and loses its grip upon things, then there's nothing missing. It's recognized in that moment that the, the voice that was screaming that it had to have this or that in order to, to be complete, in order to be satisfied, it was lying. It was a lie. Or at best, only a, a half-truth. And uh, I felt a, 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 kind of a mixture of uh, having been inc incredibly stupid and also great relief because what, be, what was clear then was that, that freedom didn't mean uh, having what you like, but it just meant liking what you have, or at least just being content with what you have. To want nothing is to be free. So what that means is that uh, freedom, liberation, doesn't depend at all on what the world is doing, on what uh, is happening in our sensory experience. We can be young or old, healthy, sick, uh, elated, depressed, whatever. These are all just qualities of the world. If the attitude is right, then there's freedom. Because it's the identification with uh, those things, or wanting the pleasant, not wanting the painful, that, that creates limitation, that creates imprisonment. Now, this is also uh, an area where, say, uh, modern um, approaches to the, to the mind, to mental health, also tend to fall short. That uh, I, with, with uh, psychotherapy, Freudian uh, psychology and psychotherapy, they, therapy tends to uh, aim at the self, the person, the self, being, being okay, feeling good, me feeling good. Now, this is quite a reasonable ideal or a reasonable goal to have because you certainly start out by feeling, well, there's me with problems, wouldn't it be nice to have me with no problems? <laughs> and so that, that tends to be the goal of, of therapy and uh, psychoanalysis and so forth. But it can't go any further than just uh, than just coping, because even if uh, even if the feelings that are, are there, even if the um, the thoughts and emotions and moods are quite uh, wholesome or, or uh, bright. Still, as long as there's that, that uh, belief in, in selfhood, belief in the, in the ego, identification with thoughts and feelings, memories, as long as there is that identification, no matter how good 
or, or right the, the thoughts and feelings and so forth are, still there'll be the shadow of, of meaninglessness, of, of the nausea of existence. There's a, a feeling of, of blandness or limitation or, you know, is this it? <laughs> I remember this was something that was really uh, devastating to me I've, after about five or six years of being a monk and my mind, had, had the, uh, the kind of whirlwind had slowed down <laughs> after the first couple of years and I've managed to, uh, for my mind to become quite calm. This was like during a retreat, particularly during retreat situations, I found I could get quite concentrated and, and calm, peaceful. And on this one particular retreat, I remember sitting there thinking, well, I can't see any of the hindrances. I kind of, you know, everything is kind of peaceful and the mind is concentrated. I'm, I'm awake and everything feels, you know, all right. And I kind of I ticked off the hindrances, right? No lust. Nope, that's okay. No lust. <laughs> How about hatred? No, no, no hatred. Quite, quite kind of benign. What about uh, uh, sloth and torpor? No, no, wide awake, wide awake. Well, how about um, restlessness? No, no, happy to sit here for however long. No, not restless. <laughs> what about doubt? No, no, quite sure about what I'm doing. Everything's... Well, why, why don't I... F <laughs> why do I feel so bland? Why does this... Why does this feel so... Goddamn ordinary. <laughs> it's like kind of you know it's it's safe and kind of okay enough, but it's been like stuck in a grey room. <laughs> Big deal. <laughs> you know this is it. After all this time, you know this is a this is a rip off. <laughs> I've been doing this for years, and I expected a bit more than this. Kind of. This is Nibbana, <laughs> but uh, I remember it was it was uh, I was really really quite dejected for a while and thought, well, what what's going on here? I mean, this 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 can't be right. I know this the the whole of the Buddha's teaching couldn't be based just around aiming at this. <laughs> so there's definitely something something's going wrong here. So I I kind of. Uh, I looked. I looked. Well, there's nothing that's that's uh, that's um, that's here that shouldn't be here, or nothing that's missing. I mean, all the kind of right qualities are are there. But oh, I see what's going wrong. I'm here. There's <laughs> me, me sitting here meditating. It's me doing it. And uh, it's like the sense of self is so uh, so familiar to us, is so assumed, is so uh, constantly created in our minds. You know, it's just like the the sky, the air, the wallpaper. We just it's just been there so long and so constantly. We just don't even notice it. And uh, and I realized that, that the sense of self, 
the feeling of me, I, was, had been creating a, a boundary around uh, my experience all the time. But because of like, there being so much kind of activity and busyness and things going on inside that boundary up until then, it n- never really noticed it. But it was only when things had cooled down that it became clear what was, what was happening. Now this is where, say, you know, Buddhist, the Buddhist approach or the approach of, uh, of enlightenment to, uh, to conditions, enlighten, being enlightened to the nature of things, this is where, uh, where the Buddha's teaching goes beyond the uh, approaches of, of, say, Western thinking, Western psychotherapy and, and approaches to mental health. Because for the Buddhist, uh, unless you're an arahant, unless you're enlightened, you're still not sane. The standard for sanity is complete enlightenment. Coping is not is not enough. <laughs> if you're just if you're not enlightened, then you're still not sane, really. Which uh, creates a whole different uh, a whole different standard. So that by um, by focusing upon the, the sense of self, the sense of identity, learning to recognize that and to to see that also as a condition of mind, then this is the way of, of going beyond just just coping, just getting by and takes us uh, to complete enlightenment, transcendence, freedom from, from all limitation, from all boundaries. With uh, the, the Buddhist approach, one has also, um, say, a different angle on developing the, um, the way to contentment or the way to, to happiness than also um, than one does, say, within in psychotherapy also, Western approaches have got a lot to be said for them. There are many, uh, much good comes out of it. But in many, in many ways, it, uh, it focuses upon trying to, to be content or feel okay about the, um, the problems that we have or the attachments, the identification, the obsessions that are there. And uh, the Buddhist approach is is broader insofar as it it sees that the way that we the way that we live the way that we act the attitudes that we have these very profoundly affect the nature of our experience what surfaces in our mind our general uh, feeling and what you would call like your self image. If um, 
if you feel bad about yourself, if you feel um, remorseful for things that you've done or, or um, uh, unhappy about the, the way that you live, the, uh, the wise thing to do is, is to change the way you live, <laughs> to change the way that you think, the way that you regard your experience or your, the things that have happened in your life. So to, uh, to live with, say, uh, an attitude of, of sharing, an attitude of generosity, an attitude of, of kindness. I mean, a lot of our, our problems uh, and our anxieties about life arise because we think about ourselves all the time. We, uh, we think, if you think about yourself, as it's been pointed out, what that uh, results in is a lot of depression and despair. <laughs> and the more you think, the more depressed you get. <laughs> because it's, uh, if you're thinking about yourself, the more you think, the more kind of judgment and criticisms arise. The more imperfections and flaws we tend to see, and the more complicated and difficult ourselves seem to be. And to cultivate an attitude of, of uh, looking outwards towards helping, sharing with others, uh, attitude of generosity, not only for material things, but also just giving our attention, giving our time, being ready to be with others, to harmonize with others, rather than being so uh, possessed with, with thinking about ourselves, about my feelings and... and uh, my uh, ideas, my hopes, my abilities, my problems. And this is difficult because it's a very self-obsessed society that we live in. The cult of the individual and, and excellence for the person is something which is pounded into us from, uh, from very early on. Competition and success and me at the top is... Uh, is something that is, is very powerfully ingrained within us. So there's, there's a lot to, to get beyond. But just to develop our lives around simple acts of kindness, of taking the trouble to look out for others, to share what we have. This creates a, a, a very natural sense of, of happiness, positivity, and a, like an undercurrent of good feeling. And uh, so too with uh, like the moral precepts, keep it living in a, a way that's restrained and, and modest, careful and sensitive towards other people, being um, aware of the effect that we have on each other and making the effort to, to, like, to restrain, to, to not act on uh, aggression or, or desire, on selfishness or greed or... Uh, or delusion, to be careful with our speech, our actions, our bodies, and our, our uh, attitudes towards each other, by developing like, a sensitivity, a, a moral sensitivity and, and care for the, uh, the feelings, the, uh, the effect that we have on those around us, 
that too, that, that sensitivity also um, helps to generate a very powerful and positive uh, mood in the mind. We don't feel remorseful about things that we've done or said because we haven't done anything or said anything that, that warrants remorse. Uh, remorse is not a, uh, a kind of neurotic weakness. <laughs> In the, the Buddha used the the uh, the description the guardian of the world like moral sensitivity uh, a sense of of uh, of uh, of shame a sense of, of remorse for doing things which are selfish or, or foolish the Buddha described this as being the protector the guardian of the world this is what keeps our our world uh, harmonious it keeps us as a a reasonably <coughs> contained and uh, well-balanced group or society is our moral sensitivity to each other. I used to, as I was saying before, I used to think of, of any kind of inhibition or, or holding back as sort of as weakness or, <laughs> or just uh, lack of courage. You know, if you were really free, if you were really, you know, your own man, if you could be really, really spontaneous, you'd just do and then <laughs> feel, uh, feel no remorse, no, no looking back. And then I'd feel, uh, you know, upset or, or ashamed of things I'd said or done and feel this was a real, uh, a real hang-up, that, you know, I was a real kind of neurotic weakling. <laughs> but in retrospect, you see that it's really good that we feel rotten about doing stupid things. <laughs> it's a real, a real help to us that something, a little light comes on in your mind that says, stupid, don't do that again. <laughs> this is a blessing to us and to everybody else. Now, you can, uh, you can say this, uh, that these bring about uh, a positive self-image. Um, but you don't really need to see it in terms of, of a sense of self at all. It's just you can see that the, the natural result of, of, of generosity, of kindness, of sensitivity is a good feeling. You feel good. You feel all right. You're less obsessed with, with yourself and you know, who you are and where you're going and what you're doing with your life. There's less of a, a, an undercurrent of anxiety that you just have to pin on yourself or on other people to blame for it. You feel, you feel good. You feel positive. And when there is that natural contented feeling or a, a more ready, positive attitude towards uh, what's going on, then you're able to, to live with your whole body, your whole mind is naturally more relaxed and at ease with life, so that your, uh, your mind becomes more peaceful. It's when the present is really uncomfortable and painful and yourself, you seem to be wrong and the world seems wrong and, and it's then that your mind lurches into the past and the future and generates alternative realities all the time. If everything's okay, here and now, then what need is there to, to come up with alternatives? You, your mind stops racing into the past and future and 
recreating the good times and rewriting the, the mistakes and, and uh, creating scenarios for the future, that you find that your mind doesn't bother to do that because, because now is, is okay, now is good. Now this is uh, the way that uh, samadhi uh, is most easily developed. If, you, if you're having to deal with a lot of anxiety and remorse and, and uh, self-criticism, then it's really hard to develop any kind of samadhi, any kind of concentration, because the tendency of the mind to be agitated and to, uh, to think a lot, to generate past and future, is very strong. So that you really have to use an awful lot of willpower and very carefully controlled conditions in order to get the mind to concentrate at all. If, if, you have, uh, if the mind is, is happy, is, is content, then uh, samadhi arises much more easily. The agitations of mind don't arise so much. So that you don't need to have such controlled conditions. You don't need to apply such intense willpower and uh, sort of rigorous determination. It's much more easy to let to uh, let the mind just settle on an object and hold to the present. That that uh, that holding a samadhi that being with the present, then naturally gives rise to insight. When, you're, when the mind is awake to the way things are here and now, then our, uh, our natural intelligence, the intelligence of the mind, uh, finds meaning. It, it notices relationships between things. It sees how things work. It, it's... Uh, it's not something that we have to will to generate. We don't have to, to bring it into existence. But the mind's own nature is intelligent. It has that as a, as a basic quality. So when the attention stays with, with, the nat- with the present, then we begin to understand it. Insight arises into the way things are. We see the, the nature of things. And that, that seeing, that vision of the way things are gives rise in turn to, to the, the response of, of letting go. When we see how things are, when we see uh, everything is, is in a state of change, everything in the natural world is just a series of patterns that uh, appear and disappear, emerge and take shape and then vanish. And that this is all just experiences in our mind, patterns of consciousness that come and go, that are aspects of nature. They're not anything to do with, with us. They're not, they're not me or mine. Then the mind naturally lets go. The painful is not pushed away. The, the beautiful is not grasped. There's no uh, deluded urge to, to hang on to this or to push away that. The, the mind is content just to, to rest in, in knowing the uh, appearance and disappearance of patterns and the, the feelings that arise with them.
happiness and, and unhappiness, pleasure and pain. There's a a brightness, a contentment, a delight at just seeing it all appear and disappear. And there's no judgment as good or bad, right or wrong, desired or undesired. There's a, a, a more and more powerful sense of of as-isness. This is the way it is. It's like this. How could it be otherwise? How could nature be any different? Sun comes up in the morning, goes down at night. The leaves are green, the sky is blue. This is the way it is. Evening, candlelight, listening to these words. It's just this. And when the mind lets go, then there's a peacefulness. And there's no, no need to add anything more to it. As soon as you think, at last, I'm peaceful, <laughs> you lost it. <laughs> as soon as you think, at last, I'm at peace, now I have attained Nibbana, you just blew it. <laughs> but peace is always there. And that uh, if if our attitude is right, if the approach is right, then enlightenment to that fundamental peaceful nature of the mind is a, we see that as a, a natural process. It's not something that has to be forced or generated. We don't have to follow a formula. We don't have to remember what's the, what's the bit that comes next. What was stage nine? Did I miss out? <laughs> It does itself. We didn't create our minds. We didn't create the nature of things. We didn't create the ability to think. Our thoughts might have our name written all over them. Our memories are personal. But did we create the ability to think? Did we create materiality? Did we create mind, spirit? Did we create good and bad? <coughs> this is just the natural of order of things. And so by uh, setting up things in the right way, by approaching in the right way, then enlightenment takes place on its own. So I uh, offer these thoughts for your consideration this evening. <laughs>